Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Sukoon, a Muslim wellness podcast by Nasimko. My name is Farhana Kasmali and I will be your host through this journey we take together towards holistic wellness with an Islamic framework. Over the course of the next year, we will be speaking to 12 community leaders, experts, and mental health and wellness professionals who will enrich us with their healing words, stories, and personal journeys on the path to wellness. I'd like to start off with an ayat of the Quran. Who has created death and life that he may test you which of you is best indeed? And he is the Almighty, the oft forgiving. Surah Mulk, Ayah number two. Join me every month as we begin these essential conversations to promote our community's well being and healing, and to begin to unravel the ways in which we as a community can heal individually, internally, and also collectively in unity. Please note this episode contains themes of domestic violence, suicide, depression, and other potentially triggering discussions. If you or someone you know is in crisis or in need of support, please look to our show notes for resources. On this episode, our first guest is Anissa Diab, a practicing Muslim and faith-based mental health professional. Anissa has over 10 years of education and experience in psychology and counseling. She is a national certified counselor and works within our community to provide services for anxiety, depression, mental health, spirituality and identity, anger management, relationships, parenting, and family. Anissa earned her bachelor's in psychology from Salisbury University and a master's in community counseling from the University of Scranton. She's traveled across the country speaking about Muslim mental health, stigma, suicide prevention, and Islamophobia. On a personal note, Anissa's work has greatly impacted my life. I have often turned to her in times of need, and anytime I've felt that I couldn't talk to anyone else, I have gone to her, and she's provided me a framework for how to live my life in a healthier and just more holistic way. Welcome, Anissa, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's my real honor and pleasure. We wanted to begin our conversation with you with the intention of beginning this endeavor, speaking with someone who has had a real pulse on the community. What can you tell us generally about the issues our community face that you face as a mental health professional? Sure. Well, I would say that Muslims in general face a lot of the same concerns that the non-Muslim population face as well when it comes to mental health related issues. I would say predominantly what I see are issues related to anxiety and depression and relationship concerns. I would say those are the top three issues unique to the Muslim community would also be things more along the lines of acculturation, um, identity issues, Islamophobia, and also issues related to Islamophobia, not only, um, you know, within the community, but also just dealing with intergenerational challenges of having maybe immigrant parents and some of the relationship concerns that present themselves there. But I think you know, we see major depression being an issue, bipolar disorder being an issue. Um, when it comes to anxiety, 
panic disorders, phobias, generalized anxiety, OCD, um, addictions as well, um, addictions to opioids, marijuana. Um, so those are some of the, the main trends, I would say, that I've been seeing lately in the community. Um, as far as challenges that I face personally as a mental health professional, I think that one of the biggest challenges is really the fact that when you are in this profession, the learning never ends and you really do have to be prepared for whatever issue walks into your door. In my case, that door is virtual because <laughs> all my sessions are done online. Um, and sometimes that happens at a juncture in your life where you're trying to navigate new challenges yourself. So when the pandemic hit in 2020, at that time I was pregnant, uh, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. I was trying to navigate homeschooling with my daughter who had just started kindergarten. Um, and I was really, mashallah, flooded with calls, flooded with emails, um, trying to, to get in touch with me and set up sessions and workshops and seminars. And um, because as you imagine, people were dealing with so much uncertainty, so much loss, feeling like, we're okay. Like life is just so out of control. Um, this was like new ground for a lot of people. So I think personally, it can be really hard to help others when you're trying to help yourself. Um, I'm in those sandwich years right now where I'm caring for young kids. I have a seven-year-old, a two-year-old, but I'm also caring for an aging mom with a terminal illness. I'm running a, a full-time practice. So I've really had to focus on my self-care as a mental health professional and, you know, alhamdulillah, therapists get therapy too. And I have my own Muslim mental health professional that I consult with from time to time when I'm struggling. And I think that has made me a stronger person and also a stronger professional who can really fully show up for my clients. Yeah, that definitely sounds like you went through a lot, especially when the pandemic hit. And I think when the pandemic hit, we learned about how much people were really struggling. I feel like people opened up more within our community about, hey, life isn't really going the way you might see online mm -hmm. and on Instagram. I actually am struggling a bit more. Um, did you kind of find that honesty when the pandemic hit? Absolutely. Yeah. People had to confront the issues that they were running away from. Um, because when you're working on site somewhere, um, as opposed to working from home and being in close quarters yeah. with your family and some of those struggles, it's almost a distraction from some of those core value issues that might be happening in life. And yeah, it looks, you know, social media paints a really pretty picture of the highlight reels of, of people's lives. But the reality is, is everyone that I've ever known is facing a battle or some kind of struggle that we know nothing about. And that the pandemic really brought that to the forefront and brought mental health to the forefront, which is a positive thing um, in my perspective uh, to have people, if that is the trigger to help people um, get help and really take the time to reflect. I think that was enama that came out of that difficult period. Yeah. Did you find that people, the ones who came to you were of a certain kind of age bracket or gender, or did it kind of cross all areas of kind of um, groups of people? 
I would say generally crossed the general population, like just all groups. Um, but I think especially for the young people, it hit them hard. The 18 to 24 age range that was just starting college. And now, wait a second, I'm supposed to be in class. I'm supposed to be, you know, on this track with my semester. I can't show up to my internship site or I can't, you know, it just created already at that time it's it's difficult because you're sorting through your identity and you're trying to prepare the framework for the rest of your life and what that's going to look like and and i think it really especially for the 18 to 24 range created a lot of anxiety i had people in that age range who had never had anxiety before or panic attacks start contacting me and saying I feel like I can't function. Um, I had to go to the hospital the other day because I was having chest pains and I couldn't breathe. And the doctors said everything was fine with me and turned out I was having a panic attack. So um, the anxiety that it triggered, that existed, existential angst, I think, of what occurred was pretty severe. Um, and it's it's gotten better now. It's died down, I would say. Um, now that we're in 2023, but of course it's, it's still there, there, if it's not going to be a pandemic trigger, it might be a, a different trigger for that person, especially um, in that age range. Yeah. And even as we kind of get out of this kind of pandemic era, it's not like we can flip a switch. It's not going to go back to the way it was. We're kind of in this, you know, it's an overused phrase, but this new normal Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like trying to figure out like, um, how much do I actually want to go to social events? And was I happier just kind of spending more time at home and people wrestling with how do I accept who I am after being home for so long and after mm -hmm. being away from people from so long and recognizing like, I do have a different personality now that I wasn't flooded with responsibilities and commitments. Absolutely. So true. Everything you said really resonates with, with what I'm seeing too. Yeah. So mental health and its support is an integral part of Islam. In your experience, do, do, do our communities lack in providing that support? Or do you see that before it was not really confronted, but now communities are being a little bit more engaging with this concept of mental health? I've been speaking on this topic now, I'd say for about 15 years, and I have seen a tremendous shift where when I first started talking, it was like, this was kind of new ground. And now it's extremely popular, especially among yeah. The, the, the younger generation, I think um, parents, they're getting on board too. immigrant parents in particular, I think still struggle with some of those mindsets and the stigmas that they also brought back from their, from their own cultures and their own upbringings around this can, that can sometimes pose an issue for their kids who might want to see a therapist or might want to talk about these issues or for the youth in the masjid who may want to focus on it. But I would say all in all, I've noticed that even if we don't invite Muslim mental health professionals into the 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 space of the masajid to um, have a workshop or to to talk about mental health, the vast majority of shuyukh and scholars are talking openly about mental health now, and I think that's really great because we do need to be preventative 
with this topic and not just reactive. I see far too much of the time where it's like a community member might end their life by suicide and like, oh my God, now we got to get together a program about suicide Um, or, you know, some tragedy, some domestic violence incident happens where uh, a spouse gets killed by her husband. Oh, now we've got to, you know, put together a a DV, um, you know, support group. And I think that we need to really be focused on having an ongoing task force with this within the masjid to address it. And some masjid have already done this, mashallah. Like I'm familiar with a lot of masjid in uh, Dearborn, Michigan, for example, who who do this. And I've been a part of their, their programming as well. Um, but you'll also find some masjid that won't even allow a female Muslim mental health professional who's wearing proper hijab to get up on a podium and speak. So yeah. you have to you have to look at what spectrum you have within your mosque, um, what context you're in with that in terms of the progressiveness, and I think work within that framework, um, essentially. But I think the ideal is to have an ongoing task force and for that to be comprised of youth who can take on an active role in volunteering with events and, um, you know, identifying stakeholders, uh, developing a professional uh, network of Muslim mental health providers who can come in and consult and be a part of this task force, having resources available at the Masajid, pamphlets on, on a variety of issues with Muslim helplines and referrals. You know, I, I think it's it'd be wonderful for all Masajid to send a survey out to their congregants and say, what are the real issues you want to talk about when it comes to mental health? What are you struggling with right now as parents? And ask them what kind of formatting they'd be interested in. You know, are they looking for workshops? Are they looking for parent training classes? Um, are, are they looking to host more like awareness events? What What's going to be helpful to you? And I think just that impl- implementation needs to be ongoing, not just reactive when a certain event happens. Yeah, that sounds um, super familiar. I think a survey is pretty much the easiest thing I think a community can do. And I think if you are listening and you think that that would be beneficial, I would say just kind of get it going. I think that opens up all the problems that are facing, you know, like we said, whether it's kids, teens, youth, any age group, I think it's an excellent way to do it. And unfortunately, there are still some communities in Masajid that won't allow a female to speak or maybe anyone to speak on this topic because maybe they mm-hmm. think, well, if we bring it up, then people will start talking about it. If we just kind of keep it under the rug, then it's not a problem anymore. Right. There, and that's a huge myth out there that if we're going to talk about suicide or domestic violence or any mental health re- related issue, we are going to put the idea and implant it in our congregants' minds. And that's just not the reality of the situation. Kids today are very much in the know about these topics. Like I I have kids coming in saying, I feel like I've been body shamed my whole life. I didn't, these to this terminology of body shaming, that's somebody who went online and started Googling, you know, all, you know, so their kids are very smart today. And you're not putting any ideas in their head. You're actually empowering them when you take 
the concerns they're already trying to navigate and give them the tools to manage it within an Islamic framework. Yeah, I think, um, and especially within kind of the moms group, like I feel it's more acceptable to say I'm burnt out, I'm tired, as opposed to wearing that badge of honor and saying, yeah, I'm exhausted, but I was up all night making these, you know, homemade crafts and I'm such a good mom kind of thing. Whereas now I'm very much like, no, I slept and I bought the cookies and I brought them in. (laughs) So being so honest, I feel like allows for someone else to say they can be honest about their struggles too. Absolutely. I think, I mean, we need to be vulnerable and it's okay to not feel okay. And I think in those moments, we often find that we're not the only ones who are not okay. (laughs) You know, like I'll, I'll talk and it's the loneliest thing in the world when you feel like you're struggling with something that nobody else wants to take the under take the time to understand and hear about. Um, I think when somebody will hold that space for you to share your concerns. I mean, we see this in the non-Muslim community where a lot of churches will have support groups for their congregants, right? They might have um, a parenting support group, a grief support group. When you hold a space for people in your masjid and you say, I don't just care about your spiritual well-being, but I also care about your mental well-being and what you're going through and how we can support each other through that. I mean, that is one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your community. So it's, it takes work. I'm not saying that yeah. this is, you know, this is easier said than done, of course. but you know, even if you chip away at it a little bit at a time, you're, you're going to get moving in the right direction, inshallah. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that we kind of lost during COVID that hopefully we're getting back that space that you mentioned. Like even I remember being with my daughter in like the mom's room, you know, the loud room. But mm-hmm. it was still like when you connected with another mom, that space where you could say, man, I'm really tired. She's going through this. It allowed for that connection. And inshallah, we get that back as we start inshallah. going back to masjids more. For sure. Inshallah. Um, for many of us, we're unaware of any basis for mental health support within our texts, like within the Quran. Do you find that there is a historical basis for the work you do as a Muslim mental health professional? I do. Um, And, you know, the word mental health is not really in our religious texts, right? Like you're not going to open up the Quran and find the word mental health. Like you're not going to open up any hadith and find the word mental health, but embedded within mental health are certain concepts that we do find within the Quran and we do find within the the hadith and and the teachings of the Ahlul So, Um, We just have to dig a little bit deeper and figure out, well, how does it connect? And we see these terminologies that are being used within the Quran, um, such as the different nufus, the different nafs that we um, experience, the nafs al-amara, the nafs al-lawama, the nafs al-mutma'inna. We hear about concepts that Imam Jafar al-Sadiq talked about, for example, with regard to um, salama, well-being, so it's it's there, well-being, and you know this idea of nafs al-mutmainna is really close to my heart because Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says in the Quran, you know, ya ayyatuha nafs al-mutmainna irji'i ila rabbiki radiyatan mardiya. It it's going to be said to the soul, uh, you know, oh rest, oh reassured soul. You know, return to your Lord 
well-pleased and pleasing to him. And when you reach that stage of nafs and mutma'inna, that's, and that's what we all have to aspire to, um, to, to this most peaceful self, that's our hope is that when Allah calls us to him, we're going to be in that state, that most peaceful self state. And I do think that that comes from knowing why you think and feel and behave as you do. And when you're be- better able to manage your your difficult situations or impulsive behaviors, um, you you begin to figure out who you are as a person. And the Holy Prophet said, mm-hmm. to know yourself is to know Allah. Mm-hmm. So psychology is is in Arabic, which is the study of the self, the study of the nafs, right? And Allah talks about these different um, degrees of the nafs. The nafs al-amara is the nafs that wants to be very primal, instinctual, animalistic, uh, the fight or flight mode, right? And we don't want to operate on that level, right? So the no. nafs al-lawama is the one that comes in and, and says, wait a second, I need to reflect on how this is serving me right now. Yeah. And, it, and it isn't. And then you use that nafs al-lawama, I believe, within the counseling process to, yeah. as one means, right? There are many means to doing this, to developing that nafs al-mutma'inna that comes from that nafs al-lawama reflection, but I believe you you use Islamic psychology to help help you cultivate what your long term vision is in life and what's your purpose, so that you can understand Allah's plan for you. Um, and in counseling sessions, I I really try to help my clients build their resilience through the teachings of the Holy Prophet and and through Allah's chosen ones and the Ahlul Bayt to help manage those trials. Um, because when you can use the Quran to to really help reframe negative cognitions and look at the big picture, you really develop a framework for how to work with past traumas or negative experiences. And that can bring us closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So throughout Islamic history, there's, there's been a number of scholars who have um, really created a legacy of Muslim mental health. It's not a postmodern idea that this is, oh, this is now a a big topic that, you know, we're trying to figure out how to integrate into Islam. No, in the seventh century, Muslims were among the first people to develop psychiatric hospitals, talk therapy. Yeah. Music and sound therapy. Yeah. They used to have healing centers in the, in the 10th century onward. And they were known as Darul Shifa Maristan. And they sprung up all throughout the Muslim world. And subhanAllah, they would utilize teachings from Abu Zayd al-Balkhi, for example, who was one of the first to diagnose and and classify uh, OCD-related disorders and phobias. He was the pioneer of psychotherapy, which, by the way, many historians say he's a follower of Ahl Bayt, Abu Zayd al-Balkhi, subhanAllah. Yeah. So anybody today can actually check out his book. It's called Sustenance of the Body and Soul, and it was the first kind of self-help book that was created to help yeah. people with, with disorders. And he used to, t- his psychological prescriptions were take medication, you know, do talk yeah. therapy, live a holistic lifestyle with moderation, go into nature, ask Allah yeah. subhanahu wa ta'ala for healing. So, and he was among many other scholars as well. So we lost some of this legacy. We, it's yeah. been forgotten, but we have to re-earth it. 
Yeah, it's so important for us as Muslims to know that we have this in our history so that we can comfort those who maybe say, no, I'm not comfortable with I these ideas and I don't think this will be helpful or this is a very Western notion. Like it, like you said, you mentioned this book, like it's it's critical for us to be able to reference some of these things so we can tell people, no, this will only help you to mm -hmm. speak to someone. Absolutely. Um, just bringing up the idea of peace. That's actually, um, I picked a word of the year and I pick one every year and this year it's peace. And it just occurred to me, that's just what salam means to greet each other. As exactly. It's to bring peace to our lives because religion, as we've said, doesn't solve our problems. It won't make the problems go away, but maybe we can be at peace and get through the difficulties of life with this foundation that we have. Sure. You know, the, the, what I love about Islam is it's such a holistic faith and it's a faith that values science. It's a faith, a faith that values research and reflection. And Allah constantly says in the Quran, look at my signs, reflect. Do you, do you not see X, Y, and Z in front of you? What does that mean to you? So to me, psychology has been that science that Allah has created um, through his the system of of this dunya that we have to say, look, you know, Allah is giving these tools and supports to us, and you know, it's not just about only using the Quran or what's said in the Ahlul but also using the science that we have today, the tools that we have, and and we've made so many strides in like just brain scanning brains and like right. wow, like based on brain scans we now know that depression is brain inflammation. You know, that's yeah. not, you, you have to deal with that. There's tools to deal with that nutritionally, behaviorally, um, medically. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's beautiful. Like the Quran is, you know, it's, it's a manual for life and it's so practical and timeless and gives us everything we need, but it also points us in the direction of using our common sense and accessing all the resources and in, in consulting with experts who who have knowledge in these areas too. Yeah. I think we often think the Quran is just too heavy and the language we won't be able to understand it. But actually if you sit there just even a few ayahs just get started. There's something that just really brings about that peace in your heart. For sure. Um, do you have do you find that you still face misconceptions within the community as you've been going these past few years and speaking to others and answering questions? Do you think that misconception about mental health is still there within our communities or are people kind of over that idea? I, I definitely still think there are misconceptions that I, I encounter, um, whether it's with my clients or within the community during my talks. I, I think they're are challenges that come with not only for me being a, a mental health professional, but also being a public figure in the community. Right. There is a concern that I sometimes see where people worry if folks work with me that their information isn't going to stay confidential. Um, oh. I've had clients who've told me that their spouses were unsupportive of them seeking therapy with me because they thought I was going to go talk about what they yeah. shared with me in sessions to the community or somebody else and ruin their reputation. And it's not just with me. It's, it's definitely, um, something said by fellow colleagues as yeah. well as like what the research backs up as one of the main barriers to, oh. um, Muslims accessing treatment is this fear that 
whatever they share in sessions is going to somehow get out there. So I do have to battle that. And, you know, I, I always tell my clients and I say this now, and I, and I tell them in session, whatever you share with me is, is so incredibly sacred. And and so I'm always so incredibly honored, um, to, to help that person in that difficult time that, you know, whatever we, we discuss stays in the sessions and, and, ethically it's just wrong right as a a therapist you can lose your license over breaching somebody's information like that that is a horrible it's it's the biggest offense you can make so it's it's not something that it's a fear that i would say is irrational um with really no basis and i just like to say it because i think when we acknowledge that it, it helps people um feel a little bit more comfortable about reaching out as a, and as a public speaker, I will talk about trends or I might use, um, hypothetical examples, but I never ever share specific client cases or details. Like that is just, it just goes so against my core values as a therapist. So I, I would say that's an example of a, of something that I've encountered for sure. Yeah. That's really I'm really sad to hear that just because I've benefited so much from our sessions because you come from a faith-based approach. Um, I just, it saddens me to think that people might feel that you would speak about it just because I feel like I've gotten to know you over the last few years. And I feel like that's the last thing you would ever even want to do. Even if someone begged you for information, you wouldn't give it like, absolutely. It's just not. not, you're just yeah. not interested in that. And I'm sure your colleagues are the same. It's like, this is kind of, you know, it's a job for you. Like you and, have to be yeah. so careful. Absolutely. And for Hannah, it's just, I want to thank you for even just opening up about the fact that you and I have worked together. You know, if I were to see you publicly at a conference or an event or something like that, I would never ethically be allowed to like say how I know you or even be the first person to go up and and talk to you unless you initiated just that's (laughs) the level that's the level of ethics that we we have that we're under and responsible for as therapists so but the fact that you do bring it up I want to say that we've worked together in that capacity is so beautiful because it helps break down stigma I think we often I mean, statistically speaking, and this is even backed by research, people are much more likely to say, hey, have you should go see a therapist about that and recommend other people to go to a therapist. But when it comes to themselves, they're hesitant, right? So mm-hmm. I think when you can say openly, look, I've been to therapy and I've, I've worked with Anissa, I've worked with whoever it is, yeah. that self-disclosure is such a beautiful way to destigmatize mental health services and, and also encourage people to get connected. So thank you for having, you know, the yeah. courage to, to share that about about, um, you know, our work together, Alhamdulillah, I've been so honored by that and, and inshallah that benefits other people and and encourages them to, to get help as well. Inshallah. For the record, if I saw you, I would totally give you a big hug and tell everyone that you saved my I would have a hard so many times. Alhamdulillah, (laughs) I would have a hard time not hugging you too. So do you, um, do you find that 
you have an idea of what more specifically can be done within communities to kind of break this barrier besides, you know, those who have sought counseling to speak up about it, um, something at the community level? Well, you know, I gave a few examples, but to add on to that, um, I think that when we talk about mental health, a lot of times people think this is such a doom gloom topic. And like when we talk about suicide, like how are we going to make this engaging, right? Like suicide prevention and all that. And my, one of my careers at one point was to coordinate mental health awareness events and and suicide prevention programs. Cause I had worked on a college campus for a while okay. to, um, to help implement those programs. Mm-hmm. And we had to make them fun and entertaining oh. and engaging. And I just want to say, it doesn't have to be such a doom gloom topic. You can and, you know, we had mental health carnivals where we'd have balloons and cotton candy and wow. each, each table would have be from a different community organization with pamphlets about their work. They might have like a wheel that you could spin with different facts about mental health and people come and collect t-shirts. And, um, it was, it was such an empowering way to talk about this issue. It doesn't have to be so gloomy. Um, So, I mean, how amazing would it be if like we had an aid carnival, we have one every year, right? But can we not make the aid carnival some kind of theme, like maybe a mental health aid carnival and have different community organizations come out and talk about their services? Um, Can we not have you know, certain um, community members, Muslim mental health professionals do some like drop in, let's talk consultation sessions where, you know, we we have reserve a room for them in the masjid and people can come for like 20 minutes and at, at, at any given whim- window and just drop by to talk to a Muslim mental health professional for yeah. a little bit. Um, can we not have some awareness campaigns where we put posters up in the bathroom with like the Nisa helpline hotline yeah. numbers? Or, you know, I, I went to a mosque one time. It was amazing. It was, I think it was the Adams Center. And within the, the bathroom of that masjid were domestic violence hotline numbers. Oh, that's amazing. It's like, this is amazing. I mean, can, yeah. it's so easy. It's it's not, doesn't have to be as hard as we think. I think the go-to has been, let's invite a speaker and talk about this. But I think we need uh, uh, to think about a lot of other tools as well. And there are so many. And if anybody wants ideas, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, again, yeah. this was a lot of the work that I did um, prior to starting my own practice now. So I'm more than happy to give folks different ideas. Yeah. And I think reducing that stigma is so important. Like, I feel like it's gone down, especially like I mentioned during COVID and we saw a lot of YouTube stuff about this when mental health came up. And um, I know even the the Masjid in Darslam has an anonymous hotline where you can call them and they have that same confidentiality that you were mentioning. They said, we will not speak to anyone, but you can just open up to us if you're going through something. Mm-hmm. And the more we speak about it, I think the stigma will reduce and maybe people will even be encouraged to kind of major in this in uni and start, you know, their own practices 10 years from now with a whole new batch of kids. That's Yeah, that's, I would love to see a huge cohort and Muslim some mental health professionals come through because we really need it and we really need more research being done specifically about Muslim mental health. We're still yeah. lacking and we're starting to get some research for sure. 
but it, yeah. we we need a lot more um, specific, you know, best practices for our community for sure. Absolutely. And I feel that growing up, sometimes we were often told, like, if you're feeling, I don't even know if we had the words for them, we would call them sad or whether we even use the word depressed or just feeling low, I think was kind of the word we used. Mm -hmm. People often just said, well, you should pray more or you should recite this dua. And I fully agree that duas and prayers really do help. They do, but I don't believe and correct me if I'm wrong, that that alone could, will help people. Do you feel that that is still the advice that's given to people who are kind of going through difficult times? For sure. And I, I don't know if it's ever going to go away for Hannah. Like I keep waiting for the year that I don't, <laughs> I don't have to talk about that anymore. Cause I feel yeah. like it's almost so overdone now, but the, the sad fact of the matter is we still have to talk about it because people are still saying things like Dwar is going to make everything go away. Like, you know, as the classic example goes, like if you have a broken leg, it's not going to go away with Dua and, you know, like it's some, for some reason as a Muslim community, we have a hard time recognizing the brain as an organ, like any other organ in the body. And right. it can be susceptible to pathology or a chemical imbalance or some kind of trauma that makes it difficult to heal. And with that requires an approach that yes, dua is part of it, but mm -hmm. also Allah encourage us, encourages us to ask people with knowledge too and consult with experts. So um, you know, I've heard people on the pulpit say going to a mental health professional is haram. Like, you know, it, oh, gosh. it boggles <laughs> my mind. And here's the thing, and they'll they'll say, and the reason I'm saying this is because Western psychologists are going to turn you away from your dean. And I, I I think if that's the concern, then go see a Muslim mental health professional. Right? Yeah. It's like this, I, it's, it just boggles the mind. Um, yeah. There's so, so many. And now with telehealth, um, you can easily access a lot of people virtually, right? I, I you know this about my yeah. services, but yeah. I've, I know stigma still exists because I have, um, you know, all my sessions are done online and I've had people that will, they'll talk to me in their cars They'll talk to me in their work office. Yeah. They'll talk to me in their bedroom closets. And I'm I'm not exaggerating. Yeah. I think that just speaks to the level of how people are just so very reluctant for others to know that they are seeking help. Um, and I do think that being able to provide an online format helps reduce some of that stigma because they're not yeah. going to be seen walking into a clinic. Um, they're not going to be ask questions by family members, where are you going? Right. Yeah. Um, subhanAllah, yeah. especially for moms who have little ones, it can be really hard for them to get out of the house and go to a session because it requires childcare or some other arrangement. So I've had clients that alhamdulillah, like done sessions with me and they've got their little ones kind of yep. chattering around. And sometimes <laughs> they're, they're nursing their child in the session. And I, and I love it because yeah. Um, you know, they're not missing that opportunity to get help. And and sometimes it's just nice to be able to even sit there and discuss some of those struggles of being a parent. Yeah, absolutely. It's so true. And as we kind of go through life, as we start meeting people, if are there signs that we should look out for for others to see if they're struggling? I know there have been instances, I'm in Houston, and there have been instances where people have had, you know, 
difficulties and it got to the breaking point. And unfortunately it was only at that breaking point. Did someone say, oh yeah, I thought they had a problem, but it was too difficult to speak up about. Are there any things we should look for younger kids, you know, older people that we should kind of keep an eye out for? For sure. And I think it's hard, right? When we notice a change in somebody's behavior, a change in somebody's mood. Um, sometimes we don't want to, we don't want to deal with it because maybe we have a lot going on ourselves or we, um, we don't know how to, we wouldn't know how to even process that conversation with them. So I think it's really important for us all. Um, just like somebody takes a CPR class, you know, we, we need to, there, there's a bunch of mental health first aid classes that folks okay. can take first of all, which a lot of some massage have begin, begun, um, hosting for their congregants. Yeah. So I think doing a mental health first aid class or a safe talk class and suicide prevention yeah. is, is a great way to help our congregants get a better idea of how to, to manage those conversations. But I, it's just, I, I think people underestimate the power of just listening empathetically. And you can just say, Hey, I I've noticed that you haven't been yourself lately. Um, It seems, you know, normally you come to the masjid and I haven't been seeing you around. And I just wanted to check in, is everything okay? And just hear them out and hear what they have to say and validate what they're going through. Um, don't be shocked if they reveal something like I've been thinking about killing myself, just be proactive in that moment and, you know, help, help them, help them navigate what resources are available. You don't have to be somebody's lifeline just because they open up to you about some kind of crisis they're facing. You don't have to take on now all of their burden because uh, they are the ones that opened up to you. you. You're one piece in the puzzle to help get that person moving in the right direction. You have the power to be a first responder to help them get connected with a therapist or a, um, a hotline, like a Muslim hotline or the national suicide prevention lifeline to, to, that can also get them resources that will help them move forward because it's, it's much easier to help them in the moment than when it's too late. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like it's really about that connection. And like you said, I think we all feel we're very busy and we are, but that connection, when you reach out to someone, not only could it help them, but I really believe it could help you when you make these social connections, when you reach out to people. And like you said, you know, none of us are responsible for everyone's mental health, but if you pick a few people and just check in with them, I think that could really help you like open up that conversation for you as well. For sure. And you might realize like you are also struggling with similar things and, and need help as well. So Mm -hmm. being able to identify those supports, not only for that person, but for yourself can be helpful. Something doesn't have to go seriously wrong with your life to need therapy. Um, People come to me for therapy for all kinds of reasons. It's not just because of feeling depressed or suicidal or, you know, going through 
some specific crisis or addiction. Yeah. It's also because they want to learn how to have more tawakal in their life, or yeah. they want to ha- learn how to let go of people pleasing, or yeah. um, just release the need to be like in control of everything. Or how do I stop these in- these intrusive like negative thoughts that I keep ruminating over? How can I yeah. like stop overthinking at night and just go to sleep? So it doesn't have to be some like you know, you don't have to meet the DSM-5 requirements to set up a session with a therapist, you know, it's, yeah. it's a journey of self-discovery and it it's beautiful. So um, I think, and you're right, in those moments you end up, when you're helping other people, you end up helping yourself too sometimes. Yeah. And you're so right about it. You not having to go through a very traumatic life experience. That's often the reason why people choose therapy, but it can just be, I'm feeling burnt out. I feel tired. I feel exhausted all the time. Like nothing's wrong in my life, but I'm still feeling this way. Why am I feeling this way? Mm -hmm. I think therapy just opens that conversation to allow you to live a much happier life, a much more peaceful life, just opening up conversations that maybe you didn't even know you were having those ruminations in your head, getting them out. Right. Um, And and you can talk to a friend. I'm not saying friends can't be helpful in a situation like that, but a friend is not going to make it all about you. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's real. It's a real luxury luxury when you realize, wow, I'm talking to somebody for the past hour and the whole hour has just been about me. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes, you know, I I think we're taught or made to feel like self-care is selfish and, you know, what I, the way I like to describe it is self-care is about saying I matter too. You know, we all work hard. Many of us are burned out and for that 45 minutes, 50 minutes or whatever, to just have somebody like help you sort through that, like knotted, you know, ball of complication in your head and just help you pull through and make sense of it all. You feel like, you know, why didn't I do this sooner? Like yeah. it's, it's a real it's luxury so, that like, a, yeah, yeah, a little known secret for just how to be happier. Yeah. So. And it is definitely a form of self-care. I think when we hear that term, which has been thrown around so much, it's not, you know, getting your nails done in a bubble bath instead mm-hmm. investing in yourself, in your soul, in your feelings just makes everything so much better. So yeah. I would encourage people to consider this as a form of self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a recent study and it was brought up a few times and it said that Muslims are twice as likely to have attempted suicide. So not falling through, but just even attempting suicide compared to any other faith group. And this shocked me when I heard it. Mm-hmm. And I just, what were your thoughts when you read that? Were you surprised or were you like, yeah, I kind of saw this coming. I what you know, when I first read it, first of all, I was I was excited for the reason that we actually have research like this right now, because this was groundbreaking research done by Dr. Rania Awad and and her associates at the Muslim um, Mental Health Lab out of Stanford University. So this was like groundbreaking research. And I was like, wow, the fact that we have this is amazing. But on the the flip side, I was really saddened um, by this, this information. And at the same time, I wasn't too surprised to be honest with you, because the number of people who come into session and say, I have suicidal ideation and and keep in mind, 99% of the clientele I work with are Muslim, right? So they're saying uh, on a pretty weekly, regular basis, I have 
suicidal thoughts. I'm I'm not going to, many of them won't act on it, but some have said to me, I've Mm. attempted, I have tried in the past. And um, it's more, it's more common than we think it is in the Muslim community. And I would say stigma is the main reason it it is, it remains the main reason why this is an issue. Because again, when you have these faith-based misconceptions of, you know, well, just go get married and you'll feel better or, you know, you're doing well academically. So I think you're fine mentally, or, you know, you just need to get over it and just go read some Quran and make dua or like religious people don't think this way that stops somebody who might really be struggling from setting up an appointment with somebody that can really help them. And the number one cause of suicide is is it first of all suicide's never caused by one thing it's it's always a multifaceted issue and there're n- a number of contributors but 90% of people who end their life by suicide have some mental health issue so it's it's mainly depression yeah. but it could be a, another mood disorder and they also tend to deal with it in a maladaptive way so they might also have some addiction that's related to that. So given that 90% of people who struggle have a very treatable um, mental health concern, the only thing getting in the way of them feeling better is somebody saying, stop, you don't need help. You just need to go read some Quran. I mean, come on. So that that's part of this issue in the Muslim community. The other issue is, is discrimination and Islamophobia. Um, I mean, we, we don't have to, uh, it doesn't yeah. take it, it, it. It's. I mean, I. I could go on and on about right. that, but I mean, there were whole laws at this one point in time in the past couple of years yeah. where there was, you know, discussion around a Muslim ban, right? So that right. that speaks a lot to the underlying racism and Islamophobia and the xenophobia that's that's present within North America. So yeah. um, these two combined stigma plus. Uh, Islamophobia are a recipe for suicide. Um, There's many facets again of it, but yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. And I, inshallah, more research can be done also to give us some more answers. Yeah. Nobody, you know, wants to open up about this, which is difficult in itself and be told you shouldn't be feeling this way. And I think that word is just awful. Like you shouldn't, you should Mm -hmm. be able to manage this. You shouldn't be you know, brought down by these things. Your life is perfect. Why, why aren't you feeling, you know, over the moon about everything? Look at what other people are going through. You should be grateful. Like all Mm -hmm. these things that we hear. Yes. Like it's so possible for two things to exist at the same time. I can be grateful for my life, but also struggle at the same time. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. You can, you can be, you know, how often do we see these millionaire celebrities and then next day they're they're They've taken their own lives, right? It's, it's really sad. You think we just, because things seem okay on the outside, doesn't mean people are not struggling with a battle we know nothing about and being understanding and kind and validating their experience. We might, we don't have to understand the ins and outs of what somebody's going through, but to, to dismiss and invalidate what they're feeling is probably one of the most dehumanizing things you can do to a person in that moment yeah. of struggle. Yeah, it's really true. 
So we're recording this at the start of the new year, and there is a lot of emphasis on 2023 and goal setting and kind of new year, new you. And as a certified planner addict, I am guilty of this as well. You know, setting yourself up for this is the year, like we're finally done with COVID. It's going to, you know, putting all those pressures at the top of this is this is when it's going to happen. This is when it's all going to get together. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on these kind of new year's resolutions or thought changes, mindset shifts, all these things that we're kind of facing to start the new year. Do you have any feelings towards them? Do you set Mm -hmm. them? Yeah, this is an excellent question. And I do think that the new year is a good time to sit and reflect and figure out what your long-term vision is. And at the same time, I just want to emphasize this, that Every single day, subhanAllah, is a new opportunity as well to set new goals for yourself. And I say this because we sometimes get that motivation in the beginning of the year and then it dwindles. I see this all the time. Like I'll walk into the gym and it's packed January 1st. And then (laughs) like (laughs) three months later, it's like, oh my goodness, where's all those people with their, you know, health goals. So, um, you know, when the reason for that is because people make an intention in the new year, they set an intention and there's something really strong and powerful about making a Nia and making an intention to do something. And I think we need to renew our intentions on a daily basis. I I think before we go to sleep at night, you know, we need to think about what our day should look like the next day to align with our core values. Every single day is almost like a, it's like a resurrection that Allah has given us because when we're sleeping, it's almost like it's that, it's that small death that, you know, our soul is sort of up, it's there. I mean, we haven't separated, your souls haven't separated from our body, but it's, it's, it's a now it's very similar to, to death. And then when we wake up, it's almost like, wow, a new opportunity, a resurrection to make the best of each day. So my, my thing is we don't have to wait for an excuse like, oh, it's 2023 or, or whatever to really set the intention. It needs to be an ongoing process in order to stay yeah. consistent. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think that a good thing to do, and this is what I do, and it's what I recommend my clients do is to really look at, cause I, I'm a, you know, I'm all about mental wellness, right. And mental wellness encompasses many different spheres, right. So it yeah. encompasses our emotional mental health aspect, psychological, um, it co- encompasses the spiritual, the physical, the environmental, yeah. the yeah. professional, the social. So I often would recommend people to take those different spheres. So start with, for example, psychologically, emotionally, what do you want to work on this year? And yeah. under that category, write down three tasks that you really want to focus on. Um, spiritually, what are three things you want to work on this year? Like a good question to ask yourself is, is if this was the last, my last year on earth, what would I be doing differently spiritually in my relationship with Allah and write down what would those three tasks look like? Um, and again, do the same thing for the physical, the environmental, maybe like you've got a lot of clutter in the house. Like it's, you know, you're stressed out, (laughs) make time to like donate, make time to think about how to stop making such large purchases. Um, 
And, and so do this for each of those spheres, the environmental, yeah. the professional, the social, and review it towards the yeah. halfway through, maybe near Ramadan, and then towards the end of the year and see where you're at. The key is don't get focused on doing all of it. Just focus on, even if it's just one thing, like one or two things, that's okay. Um, yeah. And it's also okay if this isn't the year that you tackle super huge goals. Like you said, your goal is peace. Um, mine for this year was health because we've been so sick. Um, subhanAllah, it's been really hard. Almost every month our family goes through something. So sometimes it, I mean, yeah, like it's, it's not, maybe not going to be, um, a super huge goal. Maybe it's, it's actually slowing down. That's okay too. It's yeah. okay to just survive too. It's okay yeah. to say, you know, I, I'm dealing, I'm dealing with a family member who's like dying. Like I kind of need to focus on that. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's okay to just not hi- hustle so much too. I, I want to validate that because we're all going through stuff, but maybe these goals then become more what I call the back burner goals, like the yeah. long-term goals. And, and that's fine. Yeah, I really hope hustle culture is out the window. And I totally agree that, you know, it might not be your season of life to have a big goal. So while everyone else is setting those big goals in the new year, it's okay that your goal is just survival and maybe staying healthy as much Mm -hmm. as possible. Right. Um, And no, you don't have to wait for the new year. Like I actually redid my New Year's because I hated New Year's and it was just, I was like, you know what? (laughs) It wasn't January 1st. We're doing it again. And, yeah. and I think you can do that at any point in time, even in your day, if you had a bad morning, you praise all her ass and you say, you know what, I'm restarting again. Mm-hmm. You can keep doing that. And if it's your season of life to take it easy, then that's what it is. And that's humble. That's amazing. That right. can be your goal. I agree. No, I agree. Alhamdulillah. I think we're very much on the same page with how we, we see our New Year's goals. Yeah. Um, Just thank you so much, Anissa, that I could have talked to you for, I think, hours for this discussion today. I think I was definitely on the winning end of this. Um, Before we let you go, where can people find you if they would like to reach out to you, if you could provide some guidance on that? Sure. So yeah, people can start by going to my website, which has information about my services and my different resources. So that's www.anisadiab.com. And then from there, I would encourage people to check out my social media links. So you can follow me on Facebook, on Instagram. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. But thank you so much again for having me. I really enjoyed the discussion today. Yeah. And I do recommend the, um, your social media, your Instagram account is really helpful. If people just kind of want to take a baby step into the whole mental health thing, I, your posts are always so great. Join us again next month. Thank you again to our listeners for joining us on Sukun, a Muslim wellness podcast by Nasimka. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website, nasimco.org. To keep this vital work going, please consider donating under General Fund. Your contributions could lend you a special shout out on our next show. So until next time, salam alaikum.